Father, we count it a privilege every Sunday that we can gather, celebrate Christ's resurrection, worship him for what he's done for us. It's a, I love that we move from communion this time of reflecting on his sacrifice to the preaching of your word. And I ask you, Lord, I, I ask for this regularly. I don't know another way to say it, just that I would be your vessel through which you would speak to your people, that you'd meet them here. They've come to hear from you through the scriptures. Well, I was all very thankful to pastor church that has such a hunger and thirst for the word. And so I pray, Lord, that all the truths you want to reveal to them through these verses would be clear as we uh, begin to discuss wisdom and understand it. I do pray that you would give us uh, clarity, help us see what it is and what it isn't. As Job um, wrestled with a with his friends about why things were happening in his life. And, and so I pray that you would give us application, Lord. You've recorded all this for a reason. I think there's beautiful truths here, and we want to see them work in our hearts and lives and be able to take them with us so we can best serve you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen. If you want to turn to Job 28, that's where we'll be this morning. The title of this morning's sermon is, Where is Wisdom? Where is wisdom? This sermon is going to serve someone as a foundation for next Sunday, and perhaps the Sunday after that. A few weeks ago, I told you I wanted to have a series on wisdom, but from a different perspective, I wanted to focus on the wisdom that's needed to navigate through trials. I don't know if you, sometimes you think of trials, you simply think of enduring or persevering, right? You say, how are you going to succeed when it comes to trials? You're going to succeed kind of just by putting up with them and maintaining your faith in Christ. And there's a lot of truth in that. But one of the other truths is that wisdom is needed in trials, that we handle them well, navigate through them well. And very fittingly, the man in Scripture most associated with trials, Job, has one of the most profound chapters in Scripture about wisdom. As I was studying this past week, I was surprised to read a note from one of my commentaries, and I'll share it with you. My Moody Bible uh, said, Job 28 is regarded rightly by many scholars as the theological and literary heart of the entire book. I wasn't, I wasn't aware of that, so maybe that'll give you a little more anticipation associated with seeing what this chapter is about. You consider the book of Job, and what chapters get attention? What chapters get the most attention? It's ones at the beginning and the ones at the end, right? And then we almost neglect those chapters in the middle. And so this morning, we're going to get to dig in. And, see, and that's really the heart of the book, the dialogue between Job and his friends about why these things are happening to him. And so this morning, we're going to dig into one of these really profound chapters that's in the middle, see what Job has to say about wisdom. I want to share a quote with you that came to mind this week as I was studying. On February 12, 2002, Donald Rumsfeld, who was serving as the U.S. Secretary of Defense at the time, he said, There are known knowns. In other words, there are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things that we do not know. There are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know. Had anyone heard this quote from him before? Yeah? He received a considerable amount of attention. Some people ridiculed him and mocked him for something that sounded so wordy. I'm kind of in the other camp that, that appreciated what he said, because in this very concise way, he captured, a, he captured what it's like militarily, that there are things that we know we know, things that we know we don't know, and then things we don't know that we don't know. And some people praised the, um, you know, how articulate he was and kind of at answering this question and, and 
so succinctly. And the statement became the subject of an amount of commentary, including a documentary. The film was titled The Unknown Known. And Rumsfeld wrote his biography, and then he named it, or titled it, Known and Unknown, a Memoir. And so even though Rumsfeld was discussing things militarily, the reason I thought of this quote was because I think there's an amount of application for us with trials. Let me say it one more time. I think this quote from him or this statement can apply to trials as well because trials fall into these same three categories. And what I mean is we know that God is going to bring forth good from our trials, right? So that's a known, known for us. We know that we're going to face trials in the future, but we don't know what those trials are going to be. And so in that sense, there's a known unknown. And then there's also all these things that God is doing in our lives and in the lives of others constantly, uh, associated with our trials, other people's trials, and we really have no idea what those things are. There's, and John Piper said it pretty well. He said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. <laughs> And maybe even three is generous, right? And so the other 9,997 things that God is doing are unknown unknowns to us. By the, and the reason I mention this is by the time we reach Job 28, we can see that Job's friends all think that everything he's experiencing falls into the category of known knowns. It's all figured out to them. It's, it's very simple they know why this is happening to Job. There's no question. To put it very simply, they were convinced that Job was terribly suffering because he was what? A terrible sinner, right? And so it's a known known to them. There's no question about why someone would, would go through this except that they've been a, a horrific person and, and you know, committed uh, grievous sins against the Lord. But to Job, I don't, I don't know how highly Job thought of himself. He, there was an amount of pride that was shown toward the end of the book, but my suspicion is he at least knew that he wasn't as terrible as his friends were saying that he was. And he also was aware of righteous people, we know this from other chapters, who also suffered. And so when his friends said, you're suffering because you're so terrible, Job could say, well, I know that there are other righteous people and they're suffering, And Job also knew unrighteous people who weren't suffering. And so it didn't just fit in this little box with a, you know, put a ribbon on it for Job. There were considerable unknown unknowns to him. The actual truth was really an unknown unknown to Job and his friends because they weren't privy to those chapters at the beginning of the book that we get to see. It really went beyond anything that they could have fathomed. They were not aware of the dialogue that took place between God and Satan. And one of the ironies of the book is that while Job's friends are trying to convince him that he's suffering because he's such a terrible person, God thought Job was a pretty wonderful person. If you were to, I mean, if you want maybe 1 Samuel 13, David is the man after God's own heart, or Abraham being a friend of God. If you look through the pages of Scripture and you could wish that a description that had been given to someone could be given to you, you'd be hard-pressed to find anything better than what God said about Job. Job 1.8 and Job 2.3, God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. I can't imagine anything better being said about someone. 
And so the irony is Job's friends are trying to convince him of how evil he is, when in fact God thought that he was the most righteous man of his day and one of the most righteous men to ever live. And so it was the opposite of what his friends were saying in this really interesting way. If I could give you an analogy, it's almost like Job was struck by lightning because he's the tree that rises above all the others. I mean, that's why he came, on, he came on the radar to Satan. I mean, when God says, have you considered my servant Job? It's one of those times you look and hope that God never says, have you considered my servant Pastor Scott, right? And so he's suffering terribly because he was such a, such a righteous man and had drawn the attention of the devil. And what does that have to do with Job 28? By the time we get to Job 28, if I could describe Job in one word, it would be weary. I mean, obviously he was wearied by the trials that he experienced, but he's also wearied by his, his friends, and I use the term friends loosely. He's become wearied by all of their cliches. He's become wearied by all of their platitudes. You can sense his exhaustion in the previous conversations that he's had with them. And so at this point, these men have been trying to share their uh, wisdom with Job, but what he wants is real wisdom. He doesn't want the cliches. He doesn't want the platitudes. He doesn't want to be told that this is happening for this reason when he knows it's not true. And so look with me briefly at verse 12. Job says, where shall wisdom be found and where is the place of understanding? Go ahead and look at verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? And this is the theme of the chapter. You can summarize it in three words. Where is wisdom? And what Job does, he kind of takes us on this journey looking for wisdom. First, we're going to go deep into the earth. If you want to look at verse 1 with me, Job says, Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they, being man, refines. Iron is taken out of the earth. Copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness, and he searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. And so man goes into the deepest, darkest parts of the earth to find, what does it say, silver, gold, iron, copper, but what doesn't he find? Doesn't find wisdom. Verse 4, he opens chest. By the way, we're going to look at all 28 verses, so we'll go through them pretty quickly. I'll give you kind of an understanding of them. We're not going to dig into many of them too much. Uh, there's something to be said for getting a, an understanding of an entire chapter in, a, in its completeness or in its wholeness. But to do that, we've got to go through the verses pretty quickly. I'll give you the understanding you need for us to talk about the wonderful application that the rest for, is for us. But verse 4, he opens shafts, or which is to say he digs tunnels or caves in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten. These tunnels or shafts are forgotten by travelers. Notice this. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. What's that talking about? Hanging in the air and swinging to and fro. It's talking about man as he digs these tunnels that almost repelling or descending down, hanging by ropes, swinging back and forth. And so you've got man risking his life to dig these deep shafts where nobody, it says, nobody lives or travels places that people have forgotten about and still doesn't find wisdom. Verse 5, Job says, as for the earth, out of it comes bread, which is just to say grain or wheat comes out of the earth. But underneath it, you dig down under the earth and it's turned up by fire, which is to say you go down and you find molten rock and lava. Verse six, its stones are the place of sapphires and it has dust of gold. So this is why man digs into the earth. 
He finds precious stones, such as sapphires and gold, but he still finds no wisdom. Verse 7, that path, the path that man takes, no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. So man searches out places that no bird has been able to fly or see before, but still isn't able to find wisdom. Verse 8, the proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it, which is to say man searches out the places the most powerful animals, such as the lion, have not even gone. Verse 9, man puts his hand to the flinty rock. He overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. So man breaks open large rocks. Even in Job's day, man could crack through certain sizes of rocks. He could overturn mountains in the sense of digging tunnels or, you know, cutting uh, tunnels into them. He finds every precious thing that could be under them, but he still finds no wisdom. Verse 11, he dams up the streams so that they do not trickle and the thing that is hidden. He, this is man, brings out to light. Here it is again, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? So man can create dams or stop up rivers or streams so he can search out the riverbeds. I mean, you kind of think of the gold rush or picture people coming across the country and settling, settling around San Francisco and they're looking for gold and so forth and in riverbeds. And that's what's in view here. If there's anything valuable that's hidden in the dark, man is going to bring it to light. He looks, he searches, he digs everywhere, but he still finds no wisdom. And there's two reasons that he doesn't. And one of the reasons is in verse 13. Go ahead and look there, the first half of the verse. This is a sad commentary on man. It says, man does not know its worth. And so this is one reason man doesn't find wisdom. Simply put, what? Man doesn't find wisdom for what reason? It's not valuable to him. He, or you could back up a little further. You could say, he doesn't find wisdom because he's not looking for it. He's not looking for wisdom because it's not valuable to him. And so it's a strong criticism of what man values or wealth, riches, precious stones, and what man doesn't value, wisdom. And I hope, at least for me, and I hope this does the same for you, as I read these verses, it caused me to consider what I value, what I pursue, what is important to me. And this brings us to lesson one. Do we pursue wisdom? Do we pursue wisdom? Do we pursue wisdom? On the surface, up to this point as we're reading through these verses, they really look, if you follow me for a moment, like a commendation of man's ingenuity. The previous verses look like they're complementing man's ability to do these things, that man will face a great danger to explore the earth and the sky. He'll work hard to build these tunnels and caves, you know, in the ground and under mountains. He'll bring light to the darkest and the furthest places. But then when you get to verse 12, you see their verses are not a commendation of man. They're more a criticism because the point is that man will put forth all of this effort for wealth or riches, but he will not put forth the same amount of effort for wisdom because it's not as valuable to him. He's not as interested in, in pursuing it. Now, Proverbs 3.15, it says, wisdom is more precious than jewels. Nothing you desire can compare with her. And so man will look for all these things that he thinks are valuable, all the precious jewels, sadly neglecting wisdom even though it has greater value. And I just think we should consider what we demonstrate as valuable 
by our investment of time and energy, if you consider me for a moment, do you agree that there's nobody that, let me say it like, everyone's pursuing something. That's a better way than having a bunch of negatives in there. There's nobody that's not pursuing something. Everyone's pursuing something. And you say, well, what about a lazy person? A lazy person is still pursuing something, pursuing comfort, pursuing ease. You say, what about someone that sleeps all day? That person's pursuing sleep (laughs) or rest. It's an impossibility for people not to be pursuing something because we all have an amount of time and energy, uh, whether it's mental energy, physical energy, emotional energy, that we're investing in different ways. And so the question that I'm asking, was asking myself, and I hope you might ask yourself too, is this, is wisdom valuable to me or do I demonstrate that wisdom is valuable to me by pursuing it? And if I want to consider whether I'm pursuing wisdom, I just need to consider how I invest my time and energy. So we should just take, you know, an honest evaluation of our lives and what it is that we're investing our time and our energy in. Is it profitable, uh, profitable investments that have a benefit eternally or in our sanctification, in our growth and becoming more like Christ? You know, I think of Paul's words. He says he discusses things being permissible but not profitable. In other words, they're not necessarily immoral or evil, but there's no real spiritual or eternal benefit for it. We pursue what we value. Whatever it is that we're investing our time and energy in, we are demonstrating through our actions and choices that that is valuable to us. There's really no way around it. And so if you look at what you pursue or invest your time and energy in, that is what is valuable to you. That is what you consider to be important. Now, I told you there were two reasons that man can't find wisdom. We saw the first reason, because he doesn't value it. And the second reason is in the verse, the rest of verse 13. If you look at the second half of verse 13, it says, it's not found, wisdom is not found in the land of the living. So there's no place in all the world that wisdom can be found. And this brings us to lesson two. Wisdom is hidden. Wisdom is hidden. If you look at the end of verse 11, it says, the thing that is hidden, he brings out to light. So only two verses earlier, there's this discussion of man finding everything that's hidden and bringing it to light. But there is at least one thing, thing, I was going to say one thing in all of creation, but I think that's actually the point that it's not in creation, which is why man can't find it and man can't bring it to light, and that is wisdom. It's hidden from him. The above verses make the point that man is searching everywhere, digging out mines in the earth, opening shafts where nobody lives, looking high in the air where birds fly, but he can't find wisdom because it's hidden. And this is a truth that's communicated uh, in various places in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 2, 7, Paul says, we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God. So Paul's point is, we're giving you something you're not going to get anyplace else. It's hidden or it's secret everywhere else. Matthew eleven twenty five. Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And so when Jesus says you've hidden these things from the wise, you kind of notice that and you say, well, how can they be called wise if God has hidden wisdom from them? It doesn't mean they're wise. It actually means they're wise in their own eyes. And so because of their proud hearts, God has hidden wisdom from them. Consider the parables for a moment. The word, the English word that's closest to parable is parallel, and it's fitting. They they mean the same. And I would encourage you, if you've never thought of parables this way before, to uh, consider the parallel nature of parables. Because what Jesus would do is he would use these very ordinary, 
everyday situations. I mean, if you think about it, is there a single parable that used something that you would have to have an amount of education or knowledge to understand? Not really. He'll, he'll talk about a man going out and sowing seed. He'll talk about a rebellious son. He'll talk about a judge that's unjust. And so he uses these basic, ordinary uh, accounts in these parables to teach this wisdom. And that's really what a parable is. It's where Jesus will take this earthly, physical story and he'll bring it alongside or parallel to this heavenly, eternal reality or truth so that he can impart wisdom to his listeners. But what's interesting is most of the time when Jesus taught parables, what happened between these two outcomes? Did people say, oh, this makes so much sense. You know, I'm amazed by what I just heard. That was so profound. I'm, I'm going to go home and my life is going to be changed. That's what we would expect. And I will say our lives can be changed when we do understand the parables. Or did people say something like, what is he talking about? <laughs> What did he just say? That didn't make any sense. That was so confusing to me. And I don't, just mean, I don't just mean the crowds. Who else basically said that? The ones you would most expect to understand what he was saying. The disciples. And so one reason, you know, that you can be... I, I even think of the parable of the sower. The first parable Jesus taught, the disciples come up to him after that, and they ask him what it's about. I, to be transparent with you, happen to find that very encouraging. Because when the disciples can be confused by a parable that to me seems to be one of the easier ones to understand, I feel a little bit better when I'm confused by things in Scripture. Or like when Peter talks about Paul's writings being difficult or there, there being hard things to understand. That encourages me. So the point, though, is this. Jesus would teach these parables, and they would be very confusing. And why is that? Because the wisdom in them was hidden. And the question is, if Jesus wanted to teach about the kingdom of God, which is what the parables did, if he wanted to reveal wisdom or communicate wisdom to people, then why didn't he just speak in, this very, in a very straightforwardly or plain manner? You might hear me say that, and you might say he did. If you say that, that's because God has opened your eyes to understand or to see the truth. He's opened your heart or your ears to hear those truths. But to many people, they couldn't be more confusing. And the disciples themselves, they asked this question of Jesus. Matthew 13, 10, the disciples came to him and they said, why do you speak to them in parables? Matthew 13, 13, this is why, Jesus said, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. In other words, all the wisdom of those parables is what? Hidden from those people. But blessed are your eyes, for they see they have been opened, and your ears, for they hear. And, that's, and you, what's interesting is the people that Jesus is talking about not hearing or not being able to hear and not being able to see, they did hear. They heard the parable. That's why they were confused by it. And they did see. They did see Jesus teaching it. So he's not speaking physically. He's speaking spiritually. And truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people, referring to individuals throughout the Old Testament, even the prophets themselves, they longed to see what you see, and they did not see it, and they longed to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And why is that? Because the wisdom had been hidden from them. God keeps it hidden from some, and he reveals it to others. And there was an amount of his wisdom that had been hidden until Jesus, until, God came, until the kingdom of God came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and he then revealed wisdom that had never been revealed to anyone, not even the prophets in the Old Testament who had the greatest sight or could see further than anyone else. I mean, the way that wisdom kind of 
kind of works or understanding is you, you ever see balloons, you know, start to float off and then there's people standing there and some people see the balloon a little longer than others. They can see it, they have a little better sight and they say, well, I can still see it while other people are saying that they can't see it. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, the prophets, they're staring, they're straining in the Old Testament to make out the truths that Christ has so graciously revealed to us, but they couldn't. They can only see so far. That wisdom was, was kept from them. But as believers, it has been revealed to us. Now, before we read verses 14 to 19, I want you to look at the repeated use of the word not, stressing the absence of wisdom in all of creation. Look at verse 14. The deep, which is just a way to refer to the ocean, says it's not in me, and the sea says it, referring to wisdom. Wisdom is not in me either, so you're not going to find wisdom in the ocean or in the sea. Verse 15, it can't be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. Up to this point, Job's mentioned, he's mentioned gold five times, silver once. He's named seven different stones, precious materials. None of them can purchase wisdom. And for the last three weeks, we had these sermons on knowledge, and this is one of the main differences between wisdom and knowledge. I think this is an important distinction as we're going to begin a few weeks of discussion on wisdom to understand. Knowledge is something that can be purchased. And many of us, I mean, some of you might smirk if you have a child that's in college and you've maybe paid thousands of dollars for your child's college or, or maybe you're still paying off loans or debt from college. And I'm, that's not a commentary on that being an unwise decision, you know, I, I think that it's very reasonable for people to go to school and to pay thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars for degrees. It shows the value of the knowledge that is received. We will take, you could take online courses. How many books have we purchased? How many hundreds or perhaps thousands of dollars? You know, we try to create these libraries for our kids. There's all these books we've purchased that just because we're trying to grow in knowledge. It could be an apprenticeship. People will pay others to train them. And when they're paying them to train them, they're basically paying someone with the knowledge to give them knowledge. And my whole point is this. You can't do that with wisdom. Wisdom is not something that can be purchased. You could take the, any amount of wealth. That's what's being said here. Verse 15, it can't be bought for gold. Silver cannot be weighed. There can't be enough silver for it. No matter how much wealth you have, you'll never have enough that you can purchase wisdom which is one of the main differences between wisdom and knowledge. And one reason you can't purchase it is you can't put a price on it. How much would wisdom be worth? And that's not my opinion. Look at verse 16. Wis- it, referring to wisdom, wisdom cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir. In precious onyx or sapphire, gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal as though those could purchase it. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. So the world generally thinks that money is the solution to everything. If we, I mean, you kind of think sort of uh, governmentally, agencies just vying for larger slices of the budget, and then if they can get more money, then they're going to you know, do a better job fighting crime or ending pollution or providing jobs or caring for the environment or uh, ending the situation with the homeless. There's people in there convinced if they can just get, you know, a certain amount of money, then they'll finally be happy. They'll be able to buy whatever it is that's holding them back from enjoying life the way that they, they would desire. And that's what the world thinks. And granted, there's an amount of money that's needed to live in modern society, but 
one of the greatest limitations of money is no matter what it can buy, no matter what it can do, it cannot obtain wisdom for us. And that's the point of these verses. And that's why you can see people. They might not have a lot of money. They could be poor, but they could still have considerable wisdom. We're all building up, and I'm building up to a couple points here. I just didn't want to start introducing them because the verses kind of keep making these points as we go through. We'll talk about all this application for us toward the end and then in next week's sermon. And it still leaves us with the question then in verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, and it's concealed from the birds of the air. So living people can't find wisdom, and it's even considered, you know, what you say, why does he mention birds? Because the idea is birds are, they're up high, they have this very elevated view, they're overhead, and they can see everything, and even they can't find wisdom. Verse 22, Abaddon and death. Say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Only a rumor. Can't, and the point is what? Can't find wisdom even in the land of the dead. You can't find it in the land of the living, can't find it in the land of the dead. Instead, here's where to find it. Verse 23, God understands the way to it or the way to wisdom, and he knows its place. And this brings us to lesson three. Wisdom belongs to God. And so with this verse, Job answers one of the questions that he's asked, or the question that he asked twice in verse 12 and verse 20, which is, where is wisdom? And the answer is that it belongs to God, or God has it. And maybe you've even started to kind of put this together in your minds, this point about wisdom. And if I say it real simply, it's this. Wisdom is supernatural. Do you see that? Wisdom is supernatural. That's why it's not found in the natural world or the natural realm. It's only something that can be found supernaturally. Now God, or now Job, gives the evidence of God's wisdom through these verses. He shows how wise God is in verses 24 through 27. Verse 24, he says, God looks to the ends of the earth, and he sees everything under the heavens. So unlike man, man must search, dig, you know, go up high, go into the earth to find wisdom. God doesn't need to do that. He, he's omniscient. He knows and sees everything without having to strive to see Verse 25, when he gave to the wind its weight and he apportioned the waters by measure, God has the wisdom to adjust the pressure of the wind. He adjusts the, the measure or the amount of water in the atmosphere. If these, if these proportions were changed even a little, you know, you think of some of the catastrophic experiences. What, I mean, whether it's hurricanes and tidal waves and, and typhoons and stuff. And so the, one of the greatest indictments against atheists or agnostics is really the denial of what we're seeing in these few simple verses. These, just what we read, bring such a strong criticism against atheists, and here's why. Job's point is that if you look at creation, you see so much of God's wisdom. The way that everything is so ordered, the way that everything works so well together, where if things were even off just a little bit, or the amount of intelligence behind the design, hence intelligence design, and, you know, uh, intelligent design, there's so, there's so much wisdom that nobody except the greatest fool could look at creation and think that it just happened or came about or exists on its, on its own without all these rules governing it. Now you say, well, scientists believe in laws, 
They believe in laws, but where do those laws come from? Did they develop themselves? It's, it's a level of absurdity that people reach at times, and that's what Job is decrying here. He's saying there is tr- the wisdom of God is so evident in all of creation. Look at, look at the next verse, verse 26. He made a decree for the rain. He made a way for the lightning of the thunder. He saw it. He declared it. He established it and searched it out. This is to say God commands all the rain, all of the storms that take place as they move across the earth, all the, all the flash of the lightning, all the peals of thunder. It can seem very arbitrary to us. We don't understand. I mean, especially if you live in Washington, right? What's the joke? If you don't like the weather, wait a couple minutes and it'll change, right? <laughs> it seems very arbitrary or random to us, especially in the state of Washington. And Job's point is there's nothing random about it. There's nothing arbitrary about it. God's fingerprints are over every storm you've ever seen, every sunset. It is all orchestrated and controlled by him. Yes, we do. I mean, prior to the fall, there wouldn't be the natural disasters we experience. And so because of the fall, we experience them, but even God is behind them. They don't take place outside of God's will. No matter how disastrous or horrible something looks, it's not to say that it didn't pass through the throne of God. I know that can be particularly troubling to people. Nobody, whenever something bad happens, what does everyone want to do with God? Put him far away, right? Like there's a trial, there's suffering, there's something that we think is horrible, and then suddenly we want God to be far removed from it. And I, I know people are trying to encourage themselves by that line of thought, but I think they're failing to appreciate the alternative or what they're really communicating, which is what? God is not sovereign. He is not in control. He's sort of sitting back, watching these things take place, fairly unable to help. It's, it's, God is very weak. He's very impotent. He's unable to do anything except to react, and perhaps when there's something terrible, even feel sorry for people, and sort of wish that there was something he could do about it, as though he would look down from his throne and say, oh, it's so unfortunate. I can't believe that happened. I mean, I wish this would have taken place instead, and that's almost the God. It's, a, it's the God of people's imagination, That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is one who is sovereign over everything that takes place in all of creation, in all of our lives. And and to me, what what is the most encouraging thing when, or the most encouraging reality when you're going through a difficult trial? That God is sovereign. That's where the encouragement comes from. The alternative, that God is not sovereign, is unbelievably discouraging. What do we tell ourselves through the worst trials? Let, let's just imagine for a moment, what, what do we consider the worst? Maybe a, a sick child? What do we tell ourselves? What is one of the only things we can tell ourselves? That God is still what? With us. With us. He's in control of this. It's not, it's not, he hasn't removed himself far away. This has, this is still part of his plan for our lives, even if we don't understand all of it, which is basically one reason to have this discussion is this is what's happening in the book of Job. Job is looking at God's control. Let me explain these verses in the context of the book of Job so that we can be encouraged by them, because I want you to see what's taking place with Job. As Job considers God's sovereignty over the universe, it causes him to see God's sovereignty over what? the events in his life. Even when this began for Job, 
it looked terribly chaotic. I mean, it's like, you know, one messenger comes in with bad news, the next messenger comes in with worse news. It, it must have just been the most acute, not just the most confusing moment of his life, but really the most confusing moment anyone could ever experience. And so it began that way for Job. But then as he thinks about the way that God has ordered everything, ordered nature, he begins to believe that God has ordered also everything he's experiencing. As he sees God behind all of creation, as he discusses in these verses, it allows him to see God even behind his suffering. And one reason I know, and you can know too, that that's what's happening with Job is because, now I'm not saying he handled this perfectly, but after he came to this revelation that I just discussed, this is what led him to ask for an audience with God. Why, why did Job ask for an explanation from God? Because he was convinced of God's sovereignty. He saw God's sovereignty over what was happening in his life. And that's why he wouldn't tell God, you need to explain yourself. You need to give me an explanation, except that he knew God was in control. And so he, now I'm not saying there wasn't some pride in Job, and I'm not saying that God didn't have to humble him, but this is what brought him to that request in the following chapters of an audience or to have his day in court with the Lord. And I would say the wonderful, encouraging lesson for us is this. If God can control all of creation all of, in all of its vastness and all of its complexity and all of its majesty, then how much easier can he control what? Our lives our circumstances, if we can trust God to order all of nature so well, how much more can we trust him to order our lives? And so because God is so wise and because he is completely sovereign, there's only one logical, reasonable conclusion, and it's recorded for us in verse 28. It is the conclusion that Job came to and that we should come to as well. Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. So earlier Job said where to find wisdom. So you kind of follow us first. He says, where is wisdom? And then he says where you find it with God. And now you move a little further and he says what wisdom looks like. Or he doesn't, interesting, he doesn't even say what wisdom looks like. He actually says what wisdom is. He says wisdom is fearing God. And the book of Job, it's part of what's known as the poetical books or the wisdom literature, kind of the Old Testament, not kind of, but the Old Testament, broken into three categories of books. The first book's Genesis, you know, and then, in, and, and then into the Judges and Joshua and the Samuels and Kings and Chronicles. These are the historical books. And then toward the end of the Old Testament are the prophets, and wedged in the middle are the poetical books or the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And here's the thing, all of the wisdom literature is making the exact same point to you, to us. Every single wisdom book is saying the same thing loud and clear, which is fear God. That is wisdom. That's the wisdom that the wisdom literature is communicating. We, we looked at a little bit a couple weeks ago. We, came, we looked at the end of Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Solomon says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God, keep his commandments. Fear God, keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. Proverbs the 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 110.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The wisdom books are called the wisdom books because they teach us to fear God. What does it mean to fear God? It means having an attitude of reverence toward him and awe toward him because of his great power 
and because of our confidence in his sovereignty and control over all of creation, including our lives. Now, something interesting about this is when God described Job at the beginning of the book, God said that Job was a man who feared him. God said, my servant Job who fears God. So here's what's kind of interesting. Job has been looking for wisdom throughout this book, but God would say that from the beginning, Job has been a wise man because of his fear of the Lord. And so you, we all, I think we all face situations and we want to find wise people where we have choices to make and we're thinking, who can I talk to about this? Which is really to say, who's someone wise? Well, biblically speaking, you want to know the wisest people in your life? They're the people that fear God the most. The people that are the wisest are not the people who have the most knowledge. They might be, but according to Scripture, the wisest people in your life are the ones who have the greatest fear of God. And conversely, the greatest fools in this life are those who have no fear of God. I want to close by showing you a couple verses in Job 42. Go ahead and turn there with me. Job 42. If you take your minds back to the beginning of the sermon, I said that Job's friends thought everything was a known known. Let's one more time. Job's friends thought that everything was a known known. They thought they had everything figured out. They knew why certain things were happening. They knew why God was doing what he was doing. They understood all of his purposes. And twice Job asked, where is wisdom? And here's what's interesting. When Job said, where is wisdom? One answer would be, not with my friends. Okay? Because they weren't wise. They didn't know everything like they thought they did. When Job talked about nature and creation, here's, here's actually what's happening. See, we're, we're looking at this one chapter in isolation, but this chapter is Job's response to his friends. So everything that he's saying, he's saying to them. And so here's what Job's actually doing. He says, you do not understand the natural. You don't understand the rain. You don't understand the thunder. You don't understand why and when or how there's lightning. How can you claim to understand the supernatural? You cannot explain the physical and the temporal. How do you expect to be able to explain the spiritual and the eternal? And so because of that, Job's saying, you cannot explain my suffering to me. It is incomprehensible to you. And it, it was. That was true. Now, when they acted like they could understand, and, and this, if we kind of built up for this, if you only take one thing away from this sermon, I want you to take away what I'm going to say in the next few minutes. If you can remember this, it can save you from so much false teaching. I think it can save you from so much, so much grief in your Christian life just to understand this. When Job's friends acted like they understood why God was doing what he was doing, it was not wisdom, it was arrogance. It was presumption. And that's why God did what when he talked to Job's friends? Rebuke them. Look with me at verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns. I mean, God wasn't just disagreeing with these men. He said, my anger is burning against you and against your friends for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go. Their sin was so bad that they had to offer seven bulls, seven rams. I mean, this is before the Mosaic law even. 
and go to my servant Job and offer up burnt offerings for yourselves. And my servant Job, he needed to intercede. He had to pray for them as this Old Testament picture of Christ. And then I will accept his prayer and I will not deal with you according to your folly or according to your foolishness because you twice, God says, you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. Now here's the important point. Picture this. And I I understand why this happens. Something disastrous takes place. There will be a pastor or a Bible teacher, or sometimes Christians can do this. You don't have to have a position of prominence in the church to do this. Someone will stand up, and they'll say why it happened, or they'll say why God did what he did. And, And why does someone do this? Because he wants the people he's talking to to sit back and look up at him and say, wow, he is so wise. He knows why God does what he does. He knows why this disaster happened. He knows why there was this catastrophe. These people are fooled. He doesn't know. He's a false teacher. Wisdom is not having the mind of God to know why God does everything he does. Most of these people that claim to know why God is doing what he's doing are false teachers. They're false prophets. They're bringing judgment and condemnation on themselves. Many people, and I mean, this this really, it can be somewhat of a paradigm shift in your Christian life to understand this. Many people's view of wisdom is the same view that Job's friends had, which basically makes them false teachers. They're going to sit back and they're going to say, God is doing this for this reason. He's doing it for that reason. I know why God is doing this. I know why this happened. If we get an elevated view of everything we've read, here's what we see. God is wise, and only he knows why he does what he does. (laughs) To be God means you get to do what you want, and you don't have to explain yourself to anyone. If anyone looked like he was owed an explanation, who is it? (laughs) Job. And he didn't get one. All he got was 70-something questions. And so I've always thought when I read Job, I mean, it's a very humbling book, Because I think if God didn't need to explain himself to Job, he doesn't need to explain himself to me. And to be God means that only he knows why he does certain things. They're they're only known knowns to him. To all of us, they're all unknown, unknowns. And so then this begs the question, we've built up to this. If wisdom is not knowing why God does what he does, then what is wisdom? Wisdom is fearing God when you don't understand why he's doing what he's doing. That's the simplest way to say it. And if that's the only thing you can take away from this sermon, I think it is an unbelievably important truth. Many people think wisdom is understanding why God does what he does, and it's almost the opposite of what wisdom is. Wisdom is not understanding why God does what he does and still trusting him staying faithful to him, fearing him. Job was vindicated before his friends. He was shown to be wise, not because he understood what God did. And there's one of the, one of, you know, everyone says, the, like C.S. Lewis writes this whole book on the problem of suffering and pain. Everyone's looking for answers on why they're suffering. And one of the main points of the book of Job is that you don't get to find out 
You don't get to find out why the trials take place. You don't get to find out, you, can, you get to find out that God brings forth good from them because there are verses that tell us that, but you don't get to find out why God is doing what he's doing because we're not in the place of God. And Job was vindicated before his friends, not because he could turn around and say, God did this for this reason. God was vindicated before his friends because he never cursed God with his mouth. He continued to trust God. Yes, he, he didn't handle things perfectly, but he trusted God and he feared him. And let me just read Job's words one more time. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Wisdom is knowing there's all these unknown unknowns out there, but trusting and fearing God through all of them, that's what real wisdom is. And the next week, we'll begin talking about how we can grow in wisdom. Father, we thank you for this time. And I pray we would have a right view, a right understanding of wisdom. I think it's I think there are people that think wisdom is being able to say why you're doing what you're doing. But you ask us to walk by faith. You ask us to trust you when we don't know why you're doing what you're doing. And so help us to be people of faith. Help us to be people who are wise, who fear you and trust you when the things you're doing can seem very confusing to us. And so help us to understand what true wisdom is, Lord, and that it's not something that we can get naturally It's something that is hidden that only you give supernaturally. And so grant us to fear you, grant us to trust you, especially when when that's difficult and to be people who walk by faith. And we pray these things in your son's name. Amen.